Hello, money makers and money savers. Welcome to the interview series, The Business of Business. I'm your host, Dustin Dubé, and this is Finance Fundamentals, the show where we learn how to stop working so hard for our money and learn how to make it work harder for you. This podcast is entirely based on my experiences and thoughts. I am not a financial advisor, and the thoughts and expressions you hear on this show are my own and are not reflective of my employers, past or present, nor my guests. I am not liable for investments that you make or strategies that you implement upon listening to my show. Now, back to the show. Hey friends, welcome back to Finance Fundamentals. This is the interview series, The Business of Business, where I interview unique industry experts and business owners to motivate, educate, and help you to chase your craft. Today's guest is Lisa Raich, who is not only a tax accountant, but a business advisor and tax planner who helps her clients see the future and make decisions to help them get there. She has a great perspective on women in business and can hopefully offer each of you some advice to help your businesses succeed. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to Finance Fundamentals. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me again on Finance Fundamentals. Today, I have Lisa Raish. Is it Raish or Raish? Race. Race. That was okay. good. That was good the first time. Good the first time. Lisa Race, and and I'm really excited to have you on. A perfect topic for for listeners to learn about. We can never be smart enough when it comes to financial planning, business advisory, tax planning, and you have a, a firm, Bodhi or Bodhi. Bodhi. Bodhi Business Advisors. Okay, I got it right the first time, both times. Based in Massachusetts, uh, and. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you for joining me this evening. Thank you for the invitation. Can't wait. Absolutely. Uh, so I won't lie. I did a little homework, obviously. I saw you wanted to be a CFO. Yes. So talk me through your backstory before we got to that point. You know, what led you to uh, this career trajectory? What, what was your family life like? Was there a business mind in the household or were you the odd duck? No, actually, I grew up in a house where both of my parents were entrepreneurs. Okay. And they were entrepreneurs in the 80s and 90s, long before Etsy, you know, and, and selling online and all of those things. And um, my parents would go out to shows, you know, every the, the craft shows, you know, every weekend for, oh, goodness, probably six, eight months every year. No, and my father was actually an accountant originally when I was a child. So business finance wasn't that much of a stretch. I actually originally went to college uh, to be an architect right out of high school. And no so I took, yeah, I took a major shift and came home after a couple of years, worked a full-time job, you know, did, did that whole shtick, realized that I really needed to go back to school, had a family friend who had said, well, why don't you just go in for accounting? You'll always have a job. And I was like, okay, well, you know, at this point, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But I remember telling my father, oh, I'm going to go to school for accounting. He's like, why the hell do you want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay, well, you were and things had changed a lot. The business had changed a lot since when he was since when he had been an accountant. So I did a stint in public accounting right out of college. You know, we were basically a tax shop 
Uh, I got enough, you know, I got enough of my audit hours in order to get my license when I actually passed the exam. But I got really burned out with the tax work that we were doing. We weren't really helping anyone. And we were just like churning and burning tax returns year in and year out. And that's just all we did from, and it, it seemed to get earlier and earlier every year. It was, you know, they start opening up the e-file somewhere around January 15. And then people start sending, you know, bringing their stuff in. And it just wasn't what I thought I would be doing. And so I really thought a lot about it. I actually almost went to go work for another local firm for a friend of mine, but I decided no. And I just made a complete shift and I went to work in corporate America. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me too, because it was so different than working in a public accounting firm. Um, You are not... Uh, you know, I had a lot of interaction with the clients because we I did work in a small firm. So I had kind of that one-on-one interaction with clients. And again, it was kind of like a smaller shop. Now, all of a sudden I'm in this larger entity. Um, We're doing business globally. There's probably 125 of us or something, you know, throughout the world in various countries, just got a chance to see how businesses actually run. Because when you work in public accounting, I think there's an assumption that everyone knows like, oh, well, you're an accountant, you know, not when you're working in that tax space, or you're just doing financial statements, you don't see what goes on in your client's business throughout the year. So that's, you know, I was pretty set on that. I did that for about seven or eight years. And I, as I've kind of moved along from position to position, that was what I wanted to do. I was, you know, on that, what I, they call that CFO track. So um, to finally, you know, kind of come to a realization somewhere around late 2016, that's just not what I wanted to do. It was really kind of odd to kind of come back to what I had been doing, just shifting the way that I approached because I, I felt like we should have been helping clients more when I worked in public that first stint. And the industry had changed a lot. There's more advisory going on with the advent of the cloud accounting and things like that. Now you can almost see what's going on in your clients real time where before we'd have to, you know, share huge QuickBooks files on a stick drive and, and, and bring them back and forth. And, and so it just, it really changed a lot of the way that we as professionals do business. And it also opened up that opportunity to really get in there and work with clients too. So the the things that I enjoyed about working in corporate America, the finance, the the budgets, the forecast, digging in, now I've taken that and that's the work that I do with clients versus just doing their tax returns. So at this time of the year, yes, we're eyeball deep and we're, you know, digging through the last batch of tax returns, but business doesn't stop at these you know, at these clients, just because, you know, the tax return was filed for last year, you know, right in the middle of Q2, they're starting to see a lot of their plans come to fruition. So this is a really, it's, it's kind of a, the best of both worlds. I got a chance to still do the tax, which I do like, but also kind of take that advisory work do that CFO type of work that I did do in corporate and kind of take that and share that with a business that's, 2 million, 5 million, 8 million in gross revenues that typically would not have a CFO in their business anyways, and, uh, and providing that service, that, that additional, a lot of them are entrepreneurs and they don't have huge management teams built out. So they don't have people to bounce things off of or ask questions to. So I, I, I operate in that capacity is not just the accountant, the tax person, but, you know, as an advisor. 
and, and really someone to have in their tool belt to help them. Yeah. My dad's a CPA, works in tax as well. And he has <laughs> multiple branches of his business. And, and one of them is really around advising clients, doing bookkeeping, things in that world. And it's amazing how, you know, folks that maybe came from using H&R Block or some of the more traditional quick hit services that are out there didn't get any advice when they went there. You filed your return, you paid the fee, you walked out and you did it again in a year and you just kind of took it at face value. And I am a huge advocate for if you're running a business or honestly, even if you have a complicated and enough personal tax return, you should go see a CPA. Can you talk me through a few examples maybe of instances where you realize that your clients really needed you and maybe had they not come to you, there would have been some huge issues down the road. Tax has become commoditized and you're able to find more information on the internet. You can, you can, you can use TurboTax. You can use hnrblock.com. You can use all of those services. They're wonderful services. They provide a certain benefit. But once you start to dig in and if you have investments, right? So you're, what I noticed this year, I had clients in a million years. I never thought I get their stuff in there trading on Robinhood and they're, I mean, they're day trading. And I was, I'm looking at this thinking, oh, I would have never thought that this person would be doing these things. And so you see people start to do different things. And so you get into investments and trading and you purchase that first rental real estate property, um, you know, when you, or even a business, you really need to have somebody do your tax return. That is not where you should be doing it yourself. You know, you will find the average person who's bright can follow the prompts in TurboTax. If you have a couple with two W-2s, mortgage interest, real estate taxes, for the most part, yes, they can absolutely utilize a service like an online service, get it done, you know, in a couple hours at night, and then they get their refund direct deposit in the next couple of weeks. Wonderful. It's, a, it's great. But when you start to get into more complex issues, you know, that rental real estate property, understanding that you need to depreciate the property in a specific way, you know, if it's a residential versus a commercial, understanding that you need to allocate a piece of that property to the land, which is not depreciable, understanding something basic. Again, the Robin Hood example, I had a number of clients that were day trading and they each had wash sales and didn't understand what the wash sale meant and the disallowance of the losses. And so when you're explaining to them, I had one of them, he, he emailed me back after I sent him his little summary video. And he said, I didn't realize I didn't do as well on that as I thought because he didn't know. And so you don't understand the consequences of the things that you're doing. So it's really important that you, you seek someone out to support you with that. I had a client years ago, we did an audit and um, it was in the early days of TurboTax. So the woman had a schedule C, which is basically a sole proprietor, all of the, the revenues, the expenses, and then the profit is what she's taxed on. And she came to us. She was not a client. She came to us. She had been uh, pulled for audit. So internal revenue says, hi, we want to audit, you know, one of your returns. It was a couple of years prior. And so she comes in and we start to compile all the information because they want to look They, you know, they give you the list of everything they want to look at. We start to do our prep. And what we realize in some cases is that she doesn't have all the receipts to support the numbers that she's got on the return, which is a problem. And then really the biggest thing is that when we actually looked at what she filed, while 
the majority of it was correct. She put one very large number on a wrong line. And that's the reason why she was pulled for audit. And so had she spent four or five, $800 to have someone prepare her tax return, it would have saved her. We, these audits do not go quickly. Um, they drag on 14, 16, sometimes 18 months. The auditor keeps coming back to the CPA's office regularly to grab more information, ask more questions. So this dragged on. So again, she's racking up fees to us to represent her every time the agent comes in, all the prep work we did. I think at the end of the day, between the audit adjustments, because we couldn't prove all of the numbers that they asked, our time. I think she spent maybe fifteen or twenty thousand dollars between wow. us and the tax liability. And so here, while her numbers weren't wrong, she had put basically her cost of goods sold on the wrong line. And so the return goes in, the returns go in and they get, for lack of a better word, they get graded, right? It goes through an algorithm, it gets graded. And when you fall out of the algorithm, out of the spectrum, that's when they pull you for audit and they start to ask questions. So she was immediately pulled for audit. So those are the kind of things that was a very costly, honestly, a costly mistake. And so I'm very adamant about business owners having their tax returns done. A couple of years back, I had a number of people that weren't even clients. Again, they're doing TurboTax themselves. One of them had had what was it? I think an IRA rollover of some kind. It hadn't been treated properly on the 1099. The way he reported it gets pulled. You know, they start asking questions. He gets a he gets a letter with, you know, a $15,000, $18,000 balance due. You didn't report it properly, blah, blah, blah. Again, now I need to call the service. You know, I spent some time representing him. Again, here is something that was a little bit out of the norm that he probably should have had somebody prepare the return at the time. And actually what it turned out was he thought he kept saying, I are you know, roll over, roll. Oh, I rolled it over. Well, he didn't roll over retirement. He just moved his brokerage from one company to another. So he had a sale transaction and we had to go back and basically beg for forgiveness and prove a bunch of, a bunch of basis information, which was hard because he didn't have most of it because he had purchased the investment years and years ago prior to a lot of these brokerages actually tracking what you pay for things. And so it was just something that he probably should have just had somebody prepare the return right out of the gate instead of having someone like myself represent him, make, you know, ex calls to internal revenue, which <laughs> mind you, they don't last, you know, five minutes. You are on the phone, probably an hour and a half waiting to talk to an agent before you get an agent. And then it could be another 30 minutes with the agent. And so you're just, it's just a lot of extra cost to the taxpayer to really not ask for the advice in advance of doing something like this, instead of just like doing it themselves. And so Again, you have a w, couple W-2s and you're bright and you can follow prompts and you can follow the cues. You probably can, yes, do you return yourself, but you buy a rental property, you're buying, you know, you're, you're selling brokerage, you're day trading, you're this or that, you have a business. You want to make sure you get all the expenses that you can in that business. I've had times where people come to me after the fact and I ask about it, you know, this expense and that expense and they're, oh, I can take that. Yes, you can take that expense. And so sometimes where the taxpayers really are leaving money on the table. So I think sometimes people think, oh, well, that's an expensive service. But at the end of the day, what's it costing you in potentially additional taxes or being susceptible to audit? So you've just got to kind of look at it that way.
Yeah, I think when people start businesses, there's there's certain things you need to have in your tool belt. You need to have a good CPA, a good lawyer, you know, some maybe some good advisors and maybe some investors, whatever it is going to be. But you keep that collective on speed dial. And those are the people you need to be talking to regularly, because if you are selling widgets or even services, uh, hypothetically, those services are not going to be tax services. So don't try to do something that first off is maybe going to complicate things for you down the road is not your area of expertise. And I think it's funny how sometimes we skimp on these things up front and then beat ourselves up down the road. So definitely am in, in, in agreement there. And one thing I would like to, to talk about is as you got into the field of tax and, and you decided that maybe the CFO route wasn't the right path for you, what gave you the confidence to go down this road of opening your own shop? And obviously there are numerous businesses you could have worked for, you could have worked for somebody, maybe it'd be a little less stressful, but what, what gave you that confidence and pushed you over the edge to say, I'm going to do this and... I'm going to go for it. I had come in contact with a couple of people that I hadn't seen in a while in late 2016, people I had worked with previously, people that I had met through other relationships. And it seemed like a recurring theme. Everyone was leaving corporate to start their own thing. And somewhere in me, I thought, oh, I think like maybe. And then at the same identical time, I was interviewing for a job that I, I went in, I interviewed, I think I was there five hours. Like it was like, it was my job. And then just fell off cricket, silent, nothing. And even my recruiter couldn't believe like silence from the other side. And I thought, okay, someone's trying to tell me something and, you know, staying where I am just doesn't make sense. And so I just became more open to really thinking about, you know, can I do this? I can, you know, the industry has shifted. I can use the skill set that I have built up over the last six, eight years and use what I know differently. There are more accountants and CPAs that are doing work comparable to what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, some amazing trailblazer or anything like that. There are more of us doing it. And so I found a core group of people who are like me, who are accountants, who are, you know, think differently about being in business and really attack their relationships with their clients very differently. And I found that kind of that community that understood what I wanted to do, really what I wanted to do when I worked the first time. And I just, I was too young. I was too naive. I didn't really have enough knowledge. I didn't necessarily have the skill set that I do today, which had I not gone into corporate, I wouldn't be able to offer clients. And so I needed to do that. I needed to go into corporate, but it just became more apparent to me that that's what I needed to do. I needed to go back into practice, shift what I was doing, but actually work with clients, have those conversations with them regularly. You know, they go and do something, they call me first because sometimes it's really hard if they go and purchase something or do this or do that. And, oh, gee, I really wish you would have called me. We could have done this, this, or this for you instead. And so it's very much like what you said with having the right professionals in your tool belt. You want to have that banker in your, in your back pocket. So when some opportunity comes up, you can call that banker and say, 
hey, I need to borrow because I want to do X, Y, Z. And you have that relationship. Or I have the opportunity to do this, to buy this business. Call up your attorney and say, hey, I have the opportunity you know, to buy this business. Can you help me go through the contract? You're not looking for an attorney at that moment in time. You're not Googling around on the internet trying to find somebody that you don't know, don't have a relationship with. And so it really becomes incredibly important as entrepreneurs to have everybody in your back pocket. And so after having that 20 some years of experience and being able to say, you know what, I can bring different pieces to the table and say, while this is not my specialty client, you need to talk to so-and-so because this is, you know, something you need help with. I have clients that are in the process right now, realizing their business is at a good place it's profitable. Now they're really looking and they're not that old, but they're looking to see kind of what the long-term picture looks like. What does a retirement picture look like? What do they need to do? The kids are younger. They're going to go to college. So right now in the process of talking to a financial planner to kind of figure that piece out, that's not my area of expertise, but that was one of the things when we had a conversation on our last call, I said, you really need to talk to a planner. That's the kind of thing that you need to kind of tighten up. And then One of the things that'll probably come out of that is you might need to have end of life documents done. So you'll probably need to go see an estate type of an attorney to help you organize that information. And it's just, it's little things when we're working together. It, hey, I noticed you've got a really high interest rate on, you know, one of the the last truck loans that you purchased. What happened? Oh, well, we did this. All right, well, let's build that relationship with the bank. Let's see if we can refi the vehicles that have five and six and 7% interest on them, which is crazy. Let's see if we can refi them into some sort of line with the bank and get you down to like three or 4%. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. Again, a relationship with the banker. And so just bringing all of these pieces in and being, again, just another part, another person in their tool belt to say, hey, I don't know these things. And there are things that I don't know either. But, you know, I don't know what to do with this. Oh, let's bring it. Let's bring somebody else in to support you with this, because that we really need to look into a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I thought was very interesting, I took a look at your website, and you have a quote on there that says 97% of women never take their businesses and cross sustainable growth. Correct. That kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit. I mean, that's shocking to me. Can you dive into that a little bit? Is it the lack of resources? Is it the lack of a community of support? You know, what is stopping that number from dropping? Well, there are a number of different things. So I will say one of the biggest things that the pandemic basically kind of, you know, exploded and shown everyone is how, how much of the household duties fall onto the women. And so for, I'm not sure what this, I think it's 88% of women-owned businesses do not gross over a hundred thousand dollars in revenues on an annual basis. So it's, it's your mom who's got the side hustle, who's, selling, you know, an MLM product, or maybe is selling some lotions and potions at the farmer's market, those kinds of things. But during the pandemic, what fell on them is is caring for the children in the house. So the kids are home, um, you're homeschooling them, you're taking care of everything. So that typically, regardless of what's going on in the world right now, is what happens. The mother, the wife takes care of everything. They're the ones. So they're constantly thinking about the kids. What do I have to do here? Do I have to take the dog to the vet? You have women that are middle-aged women who are what they consider sandwich generation. So they have parents who are aging and elderly. They may have young children. And so you're taking mom to a doctor's appointment 
and, you know, you're the, the school is calling you because, you know, your child did something and, you know, you're the one they call, they don't call your husband. And so there's a lot of that just of your brain that's being monopolized and women typically aren't confident. They will not, I mean, the statistics about women not applying for a job unless they're a hundred percent qualified for the position is astronomical. So it, it's, a lot of times it's a lack of education or a perceived lack of education. Like, oh, I don't, I don't have that skill set. Well, you can probably learn that skill set. And so it's it's all of those things wrapped up in being the head of the household. I don't know enough. I don't know enough people to do this. I don't have the support. And unfortunately, a lot of times women up until most recently in some instances, we're the only female in the room. And so when you're the only female in the room, women in many cases could get territorial about losing the position as the only female in the room. So women historically had competed against each other. So you're not only competing against men for positions, but you're competing against other women because you feel that you can, there's no other women, you know, it's only one woman at the table, there's only one woman in the room. And so you throw all of that cyclonic mixed up, right? And then, yeah, you don't, you get to a point where you don't get your revenues up to the next place because you don't feel like you know enough, um, you're good enough. You don't know the right people to ask. I personally, until I left my job, didn't realize how vital having a network was. I didn't have a network. I had no idea that I didn't have a network and that I needed a network. And so had I been building that network through college, you know, even after when I was working and building those relationships, you need those relationships. Just like you and I talked about a little while ago with the business owner having all of those professionals in their toolkit. As a woman, you've got to have those other professionals in your toolkit because it's not something you know. You want to be able to tap this one and say, hey, can you help me with this? I have a question about that. And be able to ask for help and realize that, you know what, I may not know 100% of things, but I can learn those things. I learned other things before I can learn more things. And so you've got all of that, that kind of creates the reason why women don't make that next, you know, that next leap. I mean, I read numbers of stories of women who walked away from their businesses during the pandemic, because there was no one to homeschool their children. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot to unpack. I think, Actually, you know, I was looking the other day at Fortune 500 CEOs. And so I work in an organization where I would say middle management is pretty 50-50. But once you climb the ranks, it tends to skew towards males. It's definitely better than it was 10 years ago, but we're still not there. Take a look at Fortune 500 CEOs. And I mean, we're talking, last I looked, it might still be single digits. And so I believe it (laughs) now, granted, there are C-suite positions that are being held by women that were definitely not in the past. It's getting we're seeing progress, but it's still not what it should be. And I think it's interesting you bring up, you know, the story of one woman being in a, a boardroom with a bunch of males and how that can be. It's sort of kind of like a, a token position. And when another female comes in, it's it's territorial. And that's that's really interesting. I think that there's there's probably a lot of psychology there. And you know, it's definitely a lot more than just the business side of things. And 
I, I mean, I'd love to to hear a clinical psychologist talk about that because it's it's definitely a lot to explore there. There is. It's not just I'm the only woman in the room, but on the other side of it, if that woman is a mother too, what a lot of what happens with a lot of them is they get mommy shamed, right? You should be dropping your child off at school. You should be picking them up every day. You should be this, you should be that. And so they may want to advance their career, but there may be that pull in the other direction that says, mom, I'm a bad mom. If I move towards building my career and advancing and and getting to that next step and and, and working towards those C-suite positions, I may or may not be there for my child. So uh, am I a bad mom? So you've got a whole slew of things going on there. Women, you know, again, being the only one in the room, not being respected, but there's tons of studies on the fact that women are actually better collaborators than men. And so when it comes to working in a team, they're, they're better. They're willing to, you know, share ideas in a team versus, you know, working just with men. So there are advantages. There's so much there. It's just, it's not just the only women in the room. You're a mom. Maybe you're not as think, you know, maybe you think you're not as smart as the others. I mean, all of, all of that. And that's all ingrained from the time that you're a child and you don't realize it until, you know, as you get older, how it's just what your little girls are quiet. You little girls, keep quiet. You don't want to be the loud one. And it's just, it, it's all of that wrapped up in just culture the way that we are raised yeah i I mean we all need to do better (laughs) it's uh it's it's if it's more evident now more than ever it's something that i saw and i don't know when you sleep because obviously your your business must keep you incredibly busy you do a variety of bookkeeping tax and advisory workshops you do tax planning you also are on a variety of boards and serve in in a board capacity so the importance of giving back to your community and and your alumni organizations, but you also are a co-founder of a great organization and you're the CFO of that organization. So I guess that CFO dream did come true. <laughs> it uh, did. Why is her? Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that ties into maybe building your network and helping female entrepreneurs succeed? So WiseHer is an online marketplace platform for women in business and career to connect one-on-one with experts in business and career to answer their questions about specific to their businesses and careers. There's tons of information on the internet, but again, there's tons of information on the internet. (laughs) It could be, it can be a a bit of a black hole. Catherine Rose, who is the founder of WiseHer, this was her brainchild. This came out of her finding herself after the market melted down in 2008 with, you know, without a job because she newborn, her mom was, her mom had gotten very ill. So she was caring for her ill mother. She was caring for her newborn and she couldn't go to a back to traditional corporate America like she had been. But over the years, one of the things that became really evident to her was her network. And it's that network that over the last three years, as she's been developing the idea out, it's that network that she went back to and she tapped and said, hey, I'm looking to talk to this one. I have an idea about this. And people who she probably hadn't spoken to in a while, but had still kept some some level of connection with. And again, social media is wonderful for that. So you could have you know LinkedIn so you can stay connected that way. But these are people who just came back and said, 
oh, you know what? I, you know, you helped me with this. Let me connect you with so-and-so. Let me get you on a call with them. Let me introduce you to them. And it was that it's that network. She's gone back and tapped that network over and over again, because she has been feeding that network for the last 20 years. I know someone here or there, and she's connected people to other people for, you know, for jobs and, and for business purposes. And so I became very aware of how vital that network was when I started working with her, because it is absolutely key to what she has been able to do over the last three years in getting indoors that were opened by people that she had maintained and nurtured that relationship with over for 20 years. Yeah, I think the the networking piece is so crucial. It's amazing how people come back into the fold. And it's funny because so my my fiance went to Bentley and I look at the alumni newsletter that she got the other day and I open it up and there's a big one pager and uh, it's a big cutout of you talking about your organization and you as an alumni. And I think that that right there shows the power of that network, because now all of these other alumni see you in there and maybe will remember you or even if they haven't interacted with you will reach out to you. What's the typical client network that you're getting, right? So is it primarily referral based? Do you have people calling you? How are you growing your portfolio of clients? And are you still taking clients? So I actively, so I have a lead gen specialist who does a level of marketing for me. So there's someone actively going out and looking for leads. But I also get a lot of referrals uh, from other professionals that I've worked with, from other clients. Every once in a while, a client will say to me, oh, uh, are you taking new clients? I said, well, I'll talk to someone. If they're the right fit, then absolutely. But you know, I'll at least have a conversation with someone. So I'm always actively looking to expand my practice. But for me, it's everyone is not always a good fit. So you know, I always go through a process, a discovery process with them to ensure that they're a right fit for me, as well as me be a right fit for them. Because I I don't just see you in March to do your tax return. I have a standing relationship with you throughout the year. Uh, at the minimum, I meet I meet with my clients on a quarterly basis and we're having a conversation quarterly. So some clients I talk to on a monthly basis. So I need to have a rapport. We have to have a rapport if we're going to be sitting across, you know, I get now it's, it's all Zoom, Zoom meetings, which is good because now I've actually expanded my practice and I have clients in other parts of the country, but I'm having that conversation with you on a quarterly basis. So there just has to be a personal rapport and a client who's really open to having the questions asked to them, but also feeling comfortable enough to ask a question and say, Hey, what about this? What about that? So for me, it just ends up having to be a specific type of client that I want and need to support that makes sense within you know my own portfolio. Yeah. I think it's important to remind yourself and for everyone to remember that even service-based industries, there are good and bad clients. <laughs> Some are probably more of a headache than they're worth. So let's, let's talk about the variety of services that you offer. So I'm a, I'm a small business, let's say, and I come to see you. How would we start our relationship? How would you get to know me, maybe know the services and the, the cater to my needs? And how would we develop that relationship over time? So I start with a discovery call and I do a pretty extensive one, usually a good 45 minutes or so. And I'm asking a lot of different questions about what's going on in your business right now, what's happened in the past. And I also want to know where they want to go. It's important for me to understand where they're trying to take it. 
And then in some cases, they may enter the discovery call thinking they know what it is they need. But as I dig in, I realize, no, you probably need some <laughs> other stuff too. <laughs> no. I only need a tax return. And then you start to dig in and you're like, well, you might need more than just a tax return. So it, the discovery call really truly is a way for me to understand where they are, hear their pain points come out of their mouth. In some cases, they've never been asked those types of questions. So it's the first time they've verbalized these types of things out loud to somebody else. They may think it. And so it just gives me a chance to kind of see what's going on and where they think that they want to go. Once we have that discovery call, and if it makes sense, then we go to the next step where I pull together a proposal. For the most part, a basic client is going to have bookkeeping, tax, and quarterly meetings. And it's easier and makes more sense for my firm to do your bookkeeping versus having you do it. And then I have to go in and clean it up. What I find clients come to me at a specific size, it potentially, possibly the wife who's doing the bookkeeping, she doesn't like it, doesn't want to do it, isn't a bookkeeper, you know, she's an RN by day and, you know, doing her husband's bookkeeping by night kind of a thing. So it doesn't make sense for her to be doing it. It's, it's not a good use of her time. So in most cases, it makes more sense for me to be doing and my firm to be doing the bookkeeping because now I control the quality of the information in the ledger so that when the client is ready to move up to that next level of advisory, where we're building out budgets and forecasts, and we're putting numbers on their overall business plans for the year that I know that the ledger is clean and it's solid and we can build numbers off of that. It's also a lot easier to have quarterly conversations with clients when you know that the ledger is clean and that the information coming out of it is, is accurate for, you know, as you know, we won't say, at, well, accurate's a really terrible word, but again, to make sure that the, the ledger is clean, you know, we're reviewing their KPIs. Where are they in their industry compared to their competitors? Um, are they doing better or worse? If they're doing better at something, what are they good at? What If they, something is worse, then why? What's going on in the business? So you really need to have good, clean numbers. So I find that it's just a lot easier for us to take it and kind of run with it. Over time, as they get bigger, they may need to have that bookkeeper in-house because they really have so much activity going on. Again, we've had the bookkeeping for a while. I've got control of it. And therefore, as it's handed off internally into a client, we have control over it and we can still be the ones who are telling the story. And so I can do what I do with my clients. So pull the proposal together. And in most cases, that's where it starts. It starts with the bookkeeping tax and the quarterly meetings. And then I build on that. Clients, again, may want and or need budgeting and forecasting. Clients may have challenges with cash flow. I work with a lot of contractors. So that tends to be a, a common challenge amongst the trades is cash flow challenges. So I might be going in and doing biweekly cash flow calls with them to kind of see where they are and where they're going. And then as the businesses get bigger and they get a little bit more complex, we can provide consulting around building out processes within the internal uh, the processes within the finance function. We can start to do what if scenarios. What if I did this? What if I did that? And really giving them more options to their plans and really, again, providing that sounding board, give them someone to ask questions to and talk to, especially if they are in the space where they have, maybe they have a controller in the business, but the owner's not a controller. So when the controller's trying to convey what's going on, it's nice to have that outside CPA come in and say, okay, this is what's going on. 
translate it, translate it to the owner. And then now the owner's like, okay, they can see what the picture looks like. So, you know, a lot of these five or $6 million business probably doesn't have a built out management team where, you know, they're doing all kinds of planning amongst the group. The owner really needs someone to bounce things off of. I want to, my revenues to, I want to increase my revenues by 20% next year. That's great. How do you plan on doing that? Is that you're adding, you adding people, you're adding salespeople. Do those salespeople have comp plan? How much do those salespeople expect to be making, you know, with those comp plans? And, you know, how much does that shift your margins? And how long does it take to ramp them? And just getting them to think about all of those things. Oh, I'm just going to hire people. Well, there's actually a little bit more that goes into the just hiring people thing and getting them to realize that if you start to put some numbers down on the paper, you'll determine whether it does or doesn't make sense and what really needs to happen and that you need to continually look at it and reevaluate it and make adjustments to it. I think a lot of times people think at the beginning of the year, oh, I'm going to do my budget or my forecast for the year. And then you stuff it in a drawer and you never look at it again. Well, things happen in your business. Look at last year. I did forecasts with clients at the beginning of the year and somewhere around March 15th, I burned them all <laughs> because <laughs> they were, because they were no longer valid. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what happens, you know, your business plan, your financial plans, your forecasts, they're all living, breathing documents that need to be adjusted as you move out through the year. So just getting clients to realize they get to a certain size and you can't, just hire people anymore once you're doing a million dollar in revenue. You've got to really think about how you're bringing them in and what they're doing for you and, and how you're going to grow your revenues in order to support those people and so on. It's not just let me hire four guys. Like, okay, well, again, like, do you have work for those people when you bring them on? And you really get beyond that kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Like you can get away with certain things at a half a million in gross revenues that you hit a million and the world changes. And now suddenly you've got to really rethink how you do things, where you're spending your money, where are you investing your time? Because your time is your most valuable asset as an entrepreneur. So, you know, what are you working on? You know, owner, you should not be answering the phone. You should have somebody to do that for you. Just getting them to realize those things, like kind of let go, let go of the stuff that you're not good at. that takes too much time. And then getting them to understand, okay, now we bring people in to support us with these things, whether it be hiring actual team members or utilizing outsourced services. Yeah, I think it, it must be pretty interesting and exciting too, when you have clients that come to you in the infancy, maybe the business is getting off the ground and it's growing faster than they ever expected. And they have very little tax proficiency, business proficiency. And over the years, hopefully given that they are in a successful business and they're hopefully taking more interest in the, the functions and the, the margins of the business, maybe you see that education grow. And obviously, partially from working with you, but also just from understanding and looking at the, the financial statements, understanding cost of goods sold, seeing the expense ratios and seeing maybe how they can do bit better against the market. This year, maybe not so much. So <laughs> yeah, this is a tough year. <laughs> It was a tough year. I'm, I'm assuming you had some interesting stories or instances with some of your clients this year. Do you have any that really stand out of, of how COVID severely impacted a couple of clients and maybe how you had to plan to keep them afloat during the time? 
I mean, the early days, it was literally just damage control, keeping, trying to keep clients alive, keeping their, their heads on, reaching out to them regularly, you know, what's going on. Some clients were affected worse than others. I have one of my clients who honestly is busier than he's ever been. You know, there are some in the trades. I mean, honestly, if you want to have work done at this point, I think I had somebody asked the beginning of this year, oh, you know, I want to put in a pool and, uh, you know, give me some names. And I'm thinking, you ain't getting a pool this year. I don't know how to break it to you. They were backed up last year. And I, I know contractors and tradesmen that are already, you know, into next year scheduling. So I was like, if you get someone to do your pool for this summer, I'm like, you might want to like rethink that one because, you know, that's probably not the best thing. So some people did really well. I have clients in the marketing space. Once the initial kind of dip down, things pick back up because they are, everyone suddenly realized I need to be on the internet and I need to have some sort of social media presence. And so suddenly what they did became very, very important. So they, every time I talk to them, I, I think they are hiring somebody new. Uh, every, you know, every time I have a conversation with them, oh, we hired somebody new. Yet on the other side of it, I have clients in another space who prior to this, we started to see that there was over time going to be a shift in their industry. Maybe in the next five, eight years or so, we were probably going to start to see shifts and we were going to have to really look at what was happening and and alter what they were going to do moving forward because that shift was going to change their business. Well, COVID basically sped that up eight years. It smacked them in the head. We are having our regular weekly cash calls. You know, we're trying to get them from point A to point B, but they've had to completely reevaluate their business and what it is that they do because the way that they have historically done business doesn't exist anymore. And so you hear people talk a lot about, well, I had to pivot. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the episode of Friends. Oh, yeah. You know, where pivot, they got pivot, the couch, pivot. the stairwell, <laughs> pivot, pivot. Yeah, exactly. That's what they have had to do. We're constantly reevaluating what they're working on and how they're doing things because the industry hasn't fallen anywhere and like set to move forward. It's still just kind of like spinning around. And so I would say every couple of weeks, I mean, we have a cash call every week, but every couple of weeks, we're reevaluating what they're doing and how they're doing it because their industry just hasn't landed like some of the other industries. And so I have some clients, again, if you want a custom shed in this area, my client is scheduling out in August. If you want a custom shed. And so, and you want any other kind of like major backyard work done. I've got another client that's basically at the end of the year. So you want anything done? It's actually getting done in 22, but then again, a completely different industry and it's still spinning and we don't know where it's going to land. And so it really has been just adapting how I attack every client. And so there's been aspects of what I do that over the last year, I'm all about process and procedure, just haven't been able to, in some cases, just sit down and like, like live in that, that process or that procedure, because it's just constantly moving for the client. So some of my clients, we, you know, I did forecasting for 21 for them. Other clients, no, I mean, I, we don't forecast beyond 13 weeks, because we just don't know what's going to happen. So there's no rhyme or reason for like who has done well or who hasn't done well. The only thing that's 
come out of the all of this pandemic, COVID, all of this is that clients realize how malleable they are or are not. And if they are malleable and they're willing to make that pivot, then they can. And if they aren't, that's where you really start to see the challenges because you can't fall back on the, well, we've always done it this way. I mean, that everyone's infamous for that. Well, we've always, I've always done business this way. And so you've got to really think about that because the way you do business may change tomorrow because of something else that's going on. You know, we've always had things going on in the world. We've always had economic things happening, but over the last year, it's just the shifts and just like the tectonic shifts in the environment has just been insane. I mean, again, I've got a ton of clients that are in the trades. Raw materials are 400% higher than they were a year ago. If you're building a house right now, it's going to cost you like three or four times what it would have 18 months ago. For clients like that, even though they're all like, you know, they're like, they're on that rocket ship, they are on that roller coaster and it's, you know, heading up, heading up the hill, but the market is only going to be able to handle so much. So you've got to have your eyes open and clients have to be aware that at some point, oh, okay, the roller coaster could down it goes like we're, we're, we're going down that slope. What the last 18 months has taught many of them is that they have to have their eyes wider open than they were before the I've always done it this way just doesn't fly anymore. You have to be, you know, more clients sadly are working in their businesses than on their businesses. For some of them, they're just trying to keep them alive, trying to keep a paycheck, keep the handful of people working for them working. And so it's just really thinking almost on your feet all the time. And just, it was my dad, what does he say? So he calls it Semper Gumby. It's like be flexible, like Gumby. And you have to be, I'd wake up every morning thinking what happened overnight because it was always something, something was happening, happening in the economy, this or that. So, you know, you'd get up in the morning and read the news and, you know, just having to adapt and understand that the entrepreneurs that understood that they had to adapt are the ones that have been slightly more successful through this, you know, to live there and live in your, well, this is the way I've always done it place. doesn't always, doesn't always get you. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. You're talking about setting up a website and getting online. I I was reading something the other day that said, you know, Squarespace and WordPress and all of these sites, these hosting sites had such a surge this year of websites set up because like you said, a lot of companies were not on, or if they were on the web, it was a very simple presence and now complete setup. So definitely malleable was the way to go this year. And I feel bad for anyone building a house because I saw lumber prices and it is unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. The prices are just insane. I mean, I, I, my, I had my quarterly calls with clients over the last couple of weeks and I opened up a couple of my calls. I'm like, uh, so what are prices up today? Yeah. <laughs> because prices were up today. Like it wasn't, oh, they went up a little bit this month. No, one of my clients was literally his, his, his pricing was changing every day for what he was paying for raw materials. So yeah, I, I heard a joke that it was like watching the stock market for, you know, lumber prices. So do not envy anyone building a house. All right. So we're going to play a little game and it's kind of a rapid fire bullish or bearish. So I'm going to throw some topics okay. or industries at you and you are going to tell me if you're bullish or bearish and just briefly why, and we're going to go through a handful of them. I tried to cater okay. these to things that I thought would be good questions for you. Okay. 
simplification of the tax code. I'm definitely bullish on that. Like that has to be a yes. It is so eye bleeding complex. My colleagues and I every day were just like, what, what changed overnight? What law changed overnight that is going to change how an entire return looks? Yeah, it's so complex. Just just the pandemic. It's just the stuff that came out of the pandemic oh, yeah. to make your eyeballs believe. So yeah, it's yeah. funny. Like you said, you feel like every year is a little bit earlier. You got to prep. And every time there's a new president and every time there's a new tax code that gets passed, it's so complex. And politicians think very short-sighted and don't realize yeah. the implications that this has on CPAs. As the son of a CPA, yeah. I was very aware of that. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about tax accountants. So unfortunately, the number of tax accountants under the age of 45 or so is significantly declining, especially the number coming out of undergraduate. Absolutely. Are you bullish or bearish on that repairing and changing? And, and maybe this is determined uh, by the tax code. I am very bullish on that because I know that there needs to be a major shift in this industry. We have historically, as practitioners not made it enticing for anybody to come out of college and come and work for us. Do you want to work a hundred hours during you know a week for 12, 13, 14 weeks during tax season? No, no one wants to do that. And so we've made it very unappealing as a profession to come into the industry. So everyone, all of my colleagues are all freaking out myself as well, because as I expand my practice, I'm looking for a skilled individual to kind of fill in a gap that I'm looking to fill. And I know that that person probably is not out in the market looking to work in public because of the industry, because of work-life balance, because when you work as an auditor right out of college, they send you off to no man's land and you sit in some scary basement room for 12 hours a day doing audits. There's nothing appealing about that. You aren't going to get someone excited to come into the industry. And so we have scared people out. So we need to have a complete shift in how we approach those that are coming out of school and coming into the industry and making it more appealing to them to want to work in public accounting and enjoy it. So part of how I interact with clients is very much a part of also, you know, how my team interacts and how I want we to be perceived by clients. And so it's just building a completely different relationship, but it's also just my firm, like everybody else has to have that overall shift in how they attack things in order for things to change. If not, all of these boomers who are retiring, they've got firms that no one wants to buy. I mean, that's just a reality right now. I know that there are practitioners that are just basically pulling their shingle down and going home because there's nobody to sell their practices to. So because we made it very unappealing. <laughs> yeah. For a long time. <laughs> little, little known fact, I actually, I studied accounting in undergrad and my first job for two years was in public accounting. And I spent many hours in dark, dusty audit rooms and anyway, made a career shift pretty quickly out of school. So I am well aware of the, the lifestyle and I didn't want to tell you that I wanted to get your answer first. Entrepreneurship for women. I think we kind of know where you stand on this. 
Let's I say, am totally bullish on oh, that yeah. all day, every day. Like we need to get more women out there in business because women have so many great ideas. If we collaborate on those ideas, I really think that we have an opportunity to fill in the gap. You know, women historically are the purchasers in the home. So when they have more disposable income because they're more, making more money, they spend more money and they bring more, you know, spend more money, bring it. So it just makes economic sense to get women out there in their own businesses, making money, making more money. And it'll in turn come back in the economy because they're going to buy more. They're going to buy more for their kids, all of those things. So absolutely, we need to get women back out to work, especially after this pandemic. Absolutely. Financial literacy in schools. Obviously, let's take private schools out of this. Let's just go with public schools and current curriculums. Are you bullish or bearish on that changing in, let's say it's 2021, let's say by 2030? Sadly, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm kind of with you, unfortunately. Yeah, I really wish it would because to be completely honest, if you don't understand how to maintain just a personal budget. If you can't do that, then it's very challenging for you to start to build out a budget for your business and understand that you need to kind of live within the means of that budget in order for the business to be profitable. I've heard the stories over and over again. Oh, I'm putting money into my business. No, you're not. You're not making any money. That's the reason why you're putting your money back into your business because you're not making any money. So I think that really truly stems from basic financial fundamentals not being taught at a very young age about understanding that things cost money and that over time that, you know, the value of money decreases. And so what you're able, your buying power shifts and, and all of that. And I really think it's a huge gaping hole in what we teach our children. Most children don't finance, basically financially illiterate. And even adults are, they don't understand it. Basics, simple concepts. And I'm not talking about being snooty just understanding compound interest and basic things like that. People just don't, they don't understand money in and money out. You got a negative. Where is it coming from? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing different? I think it needs to be taught. I think it needs to be taught early on when kids are small, teach them to understand, to save. I just don't see it shifting in the U.S. anytime soon. Yeah, it's kind of actually what sparked the idea for this podcast is there's a lot. Yeah, so there's a lot out there for uh, you, you know, we saw everything that happened with GameStop. And I think that got a lot of young people interested in understanding, well, what is a stock short? Okay, yeah. well, that that's great. You can understand that all day long. But let's start with the basics. Let's understand your bank account. Let's understand compound interest. How's an IRA work? Let's do some basic tax planning. I think there's a lot that, you know, maybe start very basic as they're younger. But once students are at that high school age, I think a lot of them actually have interest in this. You know, they see things happening on the news and they understand, at least in some capacity, let's at least provide them an opportunity to expand on that. And some of them may decide to go down some of these more traditional career paths in finance. So I think that there's a lot of non-traditional education out there. You know, there's there's podcasts and YouTube videos and blogs and that that's great. But uh, it needs to be in front of students younger and creating those fundamentals so that as they age, expand upon them. And I think that it's it's very natural and simple, but unfortunately, curriculums are not something that I create. (laughs) No. And I think the sad part, too, is even if we teach our children at school, if mom and dad don't understand the fundamentals, I think it needs to be a whole family 
activity. Okay, so this is this is actually one of my favorite questions that I've been asking lately, and it's it's put a couple of people in their their tracks. So I hope that I don't pause you too badly. So you started in 2016. So this is perfect question. Give yourself advice five years ago that you wish you had thought of as opening your business. You are now an entrepreneur venturing into an existing space, but it's still new for you. And then I want you to think about it's 2021. Let's go to 2026. Give yourself advice today that you think you should keep in mind five years from today. I mentioned it in that article that the Bentley article is listen to your gut. I did some things early on and I didn't listen to my gut and I am getting better at it and it has benefited me. While it may not be anything earth shattering, listen to your gut because a lot of times it knows you know, deep down inside what you should, shouldn't like how you should respond, whatever it is. Yeah. That for me is going to, that needs to be like a core, like always for me, for sure. Yeah. I think that that's really important. Oftentimes the answer is inside of us. We just sometimes lack the confidence to, to jump forward. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. We, we could go on for hours. I, oh, I, mean, I could chew your ear off for days. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much to talk about here, but I think that uh, you you offer a really unique perspective and I, I love the career path you've taken and I appreciate you, you coming on and I will leave all of Lisa's information in the description if you would like to reach out with her. Maybe you'll be a, a new client of hers. Otherwise, she is always open to networking and I, I, like we talked about, growing that network is so powerful. So Absolutely. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed myself. You got it. This was another great interview right here on the Finance Fundamentals Podcast Business of Business interview series. Lisa offers a great perspective on business planning, tax planning, business advising, and women in business. And I'm really happy that she came on the show. I will leave all of her appropriate links in the description if you would like to reach out to her or learn more. Lisa's attitude is infectious and I really enjoyed having her on. I think all of us can learn from her perspective and her experiences. Things are going to be pretty busy in my life this summer. I actually have four weddings to attend in the month of August alone, so I will not have much time for my educational episodes. But don't worry, I will be releasing interviews every week until then, and when I return, I will have a whole new slew of educational topics. Check back next week for another interview, and I promise I will return to my normal schedule back in the fall. Together, we'll own that road to financial freedom, and I'm really glad you're joining me for it. I want to hear from you. Have a topic you'd like discussed? A suggestion? You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email, and more. Check out the description for my link tree. I look forward to hearing from you. The show is written and edited by me. Produced and edited by Daniel Rue. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and we really hope you enjoy them.